As Karen comes forward to hear the scripture, I've got the screens down for a reason in this service. Um, part of it is so that you can read the scripture. I have been tempted in both service to have us read this in unison, but I'm not going to do that. I didn't do it first service. I'm going to have you go ahead and read it. There is an outline in this scripture out of Ephesians about what it means to be one with God. See if you can find it. And matter of fact, there are at least three pieces that you're going to find in there. So as Karen reads, it's going to be on the screen so that we can kind of get both of those. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I'm going to come down um, from the lofty presence of the pulpit this morning because it's important that we're together in this discussion. I asked for service and decided um, this morning that I was going to do the same thing in second service, even though I know you guys don't like to talk. <laughs> what is atonement? And I mean, this is not a rhetorical question. What is, when you think of the word atonement, what comes to mind? Anybody? At one meant, and we'll, we'll get back to that. So dividing that one long word into three very specific words... At one meant. Meant to be at one with God. Anybody else? What comes to mind when you think of the word atonement? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Others? Admitting your sin. sin. Other things. Say it again. Repayment. Stacy? Stacy? Say that again, one more time. A religious definition that is not understandable by most people. And I would agree with that. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to go into that today. Those are all great, and the dictionary would agree with, with all of those. And back, lead to what you said, really, I think the easiest way to understand it is to look at the, those three words within the one word. At one meant... What do we do to help us become one with God? I want to talk about three very specific ways that that could be approached. But first, I want to go back to kind of the orthodox way. And go ahead and put the crucifix up there, Melinda, if you will. This is what many of us grew up with as atonement. Now, you know, it was hard to find a picture that wasn't so graphic that it was all about just blood. But this is, when we think of atonement, usually the cross comes to mind first. There's a reason for that, and 
Um, So let me go back to the place where this began. But I want to ask you a question. In that Ephesian scripture that you heard Karen read as you read it, was there anything in there about blood? No. I wonder why. Well, let's see if we can figure this out. The orthodox understanding of atonement, that which is kind of basic, that, and you know, we came to terms with this in seminary, you have to go back to, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Genesis 3, and you look at what is the third version of the creation story in Scripture. And it is the story... Um, where Adam and Eve are in the garden, right? This incredible gift of God, this garden of Eden, perfect place. And there's only one rule, that, that Adam and Eve are not to eat of this certain tree, right? And that, that Because that will open their eyes and they won't understand what they see. And immediately, there is this adversarial person, and that's what uh, Satan means adversary. Hasatan is the larger word that means the adversary. This adversary is kind of curled in this tree like a serpent and draws Eve over and said, what did God say to you? Did God say to you that you should not eat of any tree in the gardens? Um, No, God said that we can't eat of this tree in the garden. And then she takes it one step further and and we're not even supposed to touch it. Well, the, the, the adversary says, if you eat of this, the reason God said that you shouldn't eat of this is that then you'll be like God. So I'll tell you what. Here. There it is. And what does she immediately do? She takes a bite out of that piece of fruit and then hands it to her husband. I just want, I want it duly noted where it all began. One more time, it did not begin with Adam. It began with the woman. I I just want that duly noted at this point. Um, So she eats of it, Adam then eats of it, they realize that they're naked, their eyes truly are open to their nakedness before God. They go like hiding in the bushes, God comes strolling through the garden and says, where are you? I can't find you because I miss our relationship. And Adam from the garden says, the wife that you gave me has given me this fruit. And we have now realized that we are naked, so we're hiding. Now the other key element to this story, and you've heard me say this before, is that they do the most absolutely foolish, idiotic thing that they could possibly do. And what they do is they tie fig leaves, which is like very much in that time, the figs of that time, there are parts of that leaves that are very much like poison ivy. And as they tie fig leaves to themselves and put them in the most sensitive parts of their body, what do you think is going to happen? They're not just sitting in the bushes. They're itching and scratching in the bushes. And, and so God says, who, who did this? And... Then the finger pointing begins, right? Eve says, the serpent. And Adam points at Eve and says, oh, it was her. And the finger pointing continues. But the, the punishment that comes out of this is God takes them from this area of perfection, this garden, if you will, and kicks them out. And not only does God kick them out, not only does God kick them out, he guards the garden because he no longer trusts them with a cherubim with a flaming sword that they will be cut down if they even venture to come in to this garden again. And there is this separation, and we commonly call this the fall of Adam. Why it's not called the fall of Eve, I will never understand. But it's the fall of Adam. And from here on, God looks at humanity, the entirety of humanity, through angry, hateful, vengeful, unforgiving 
eyes. But in the midst of that, God chooses a chosen people. And the only way that they can overcome that original fall is by every year they go to the temple. And because the temple is where God lives, and God lives behind this amazing curtain in the Holy of Holies, and no one is allowed in there. And so to get as close as they can with God, they come into the temple courtyard, they purchase an animal, whatever animal they can afford. For the poor, it's a dove. For the rich, it's a steer. That animal is taken, and I apologize for the graphic nature of this, but with that picture in mind, we need to come to terms with the graphic nature of this. The priest cuts the animal open, removes its entrails, examines the entrails, and if the entrails are perfect, he then offers that all into this flaming altar, huge, huge altar, offers that those entrails into the altar, pours the blood over the altar, and... Um, and then places the animal in the, in the burning altar as well so that as the animal burns, that becomes, and you've heard this said, a fragrant offering to God who lives up. Because how, what happens with smoke when it burns? It goes up. And into the nostrils of God, God looks down and says, oh, well, that dove was purchased by Bill and Sandy. And so Bill and Sandy, uh, because you've offered me this and because the animal was perfect, I forgive you, and you can go off for another year and not worry until you come back to the temple. If if the entrails of that animal were not perfect, they were considered outcasts and cursed by God and rejected and not even able to go to the temple anymore, ostracized from the community. So you with me so far? Boy, we don't hear that in Sunday school do we? Then comes the ultimate sacrifice. God sends God's own son into the world who lives without blemish, right? Jesus lives without blemish. And as we even come to the crucifixion part of it, this part of it, Jesus's side is pierced. That was an essential element if Jesus was to be the sacrifice, that the side is pierced, and what comes flowing out of there? Clear fluid. Now you can go into all the physiological elements of that, but it was important that it was clear, perfect fluid. And the blood becomes that ultimate sacrifice, and the orthodox understanding of this is that, okay, by the blood, Old Testament, by the blood, we are saved and our sins are forgiven. But very similar to what's happening in the temple and with the ancient Hebrews is if you don't believe in Jesus and aren't covered in his blood by this ultimate sacrifice, guess what? You're rejected and you don't make it. Now I'm going to come back to that in just a second and tell you where that all came from as it may be a surprise to you. So, that's one. But let's deal with two others. So this next one is the return of the prodigal son. I've preached on this before. I think we've had this picture in here, and I'll bring this up a little bit so you can see a little bit closer. Joe Lee has this as a poster in his home and brought this in, this picture in his home. 
I want to relate this story. This comes out of the Gospel of Luke. So we have the Old Testament version. Now we have, to some extent, the Gospel of Luke. What Luke says is, as this parable is being told by Jesus is, here's this story of a Jewish son who, the younger son, not the older son, the younger son who comes to his father and and creates the absolute bottom line abomination in any family. He comes to his father and he says, I kind of wish you were dead, so since I kind of wish you were dead, um, give me everything that you would give me if you, if you died today. And the father does. The father gives him his inheritance. And what does this young man do? He goes off into a far country. He spends it all on partying, on women and uh, all kinds of things, and, and suddenly finds himself without money because a famine has hit. And he finds himself, this young Jewish boy, a young man, in a pigsty, eating what the pigs eat, which goes absolutely against everything Jewish, and uh, suddenly realizes, oh my gosh, here I am in this pigsty. My father's servants have more than I do. I, I know what I'll do. I'll go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. Make me as one of your hired servants. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Absolute separation. But the son then begins on his way home to rehearse this line, and over and over and over again he rehearses this line. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And and the guilt is is building up in him, and the fear of what's going to happen when he gets home as he crosses and comes around the turn where he could see the house, he sees his father standing there looking for him, waiting for him. And the father runs to him, arms outstretched, tears rolling down his face, runs to him and embraces him. And in that embrace, here is the son saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am. And then the father's hand goes over the mouth. He does not need to hear these words. He embraces him. He puts the royal family robe on. He puts the family ring on. He puts the sandals on him so that there's no confusion that this is not a servant. And he fully becomes one with him again as a member of the family. Oh, but wait. There is this older brother out in the field who has been steadfast. Father, I've been with you my whole life. I have never done anything like this. And now this brother, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours comes back. And finger pointing. It's amazing, that thing. And what does the father say to him? Yeah, you've been steadfast. But he was alive. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And what we see in the midst of that is an incredible grace, but problems on both sides with both sons. So what makes one What makes them one with the Father? The fact that the Father is willing to embrace both of them, identify for them maybe what has gone wrong, and there is something in the midst of this called confession. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Sometimes confession comes in the form of someone else saying, I've seen this in you and maybe we need to work on this. So confession becomes... One of those things that potentially helps us become one with God. Number two. Number three, Mother Teresa. I love this picture. 
If now you're to turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is that familiar story about the sheep and the goats. You remember this story? What we quote at the end of Matthew 25 is the key line here. Inasmuch as you have done it for the least of these, you have done it for me. What's interesting about this story is that if you don't do it for the least of these, guess what Jesus says happens to you? You become separated. You are no longer a part of me. Yet if you do unto the least of these, my brethren and sistren, you are a part, one with me. Back to the crucifix. So hold those things in place. And I'm not going to take a lot of time on some of these other things. What's interesting is the whole blood sacrifice thing, the whole, I mean, issue around the, the suffering and the bloodiness and, and the covering of blood was never introduced into the early church. It was never, ever a doctrine of the early church. Matter of fact, it really wasn't introduced until the 10th century and really the 11th century. And guess what was going on in the 11th century? The Catholic Church had emerged. And guess what they did? In order to kind of attract the sons of that time to go fight in the Crusades, they made promises to the families that would give up their sons to go and fight in Jerusalem, and the promise went something like this. If you will give up your son, and your son become willing to bleed and die, you will be elevated to heaven. As will not just you, but your family and the families before you. All of you will be elevated to heaven. If you don't give up your son to go fight in the Crusades, to potentially bleed and die and suffer, you will be doomed to hell. The 11th century. Not the 1st century. Not the 2nd. The deeper understanding in that time was what you heard Karen read in Ephesians. If you go back to Paul in Corinthians, and as he is bringing this Last Supper understanding together, what he is basically saying is, Jesus sacrificed himself for us. In other words, he lived his life in such a way, so sacrificially, and in such a way that would cause his death. This meal reminds us of what we are to do, to live our lives sacrificially. Again, this whole idea of blood and guts combined the Crusades with the Old Testament practice. And here we are today, still living this, and believing that somehow that is going to atone us with God, make us one with God. But I don't want to diminish that. I'll come back to it in a second. Second piece again. Is confession bad? No. But in that time, again, out of the 11th century, confession became a requirement at the very same time that indulgences were born. Indulgences were those things that said you can purchase your way into heaven by doing the right things. 
one of the right things to elevate you in heaven was to practice confession and that you would do it publicly and before a priest. And a priest was only the only one holy enough to hear this because they had this special relationship with God. Guess what happened? And by the way, that happened all the way up into Vatican II. So the 20th century. But it has now gone by the wayside very much like purgatory. By the way, there is no more purgatory. Um, and But we've also lost... What did you say? Did you get a memo? I did. As a matter of fact, I got a memo. Because I'm a priest and I'm special. But what happened is we also lost confession. And I think that's a loss. And I'll come back to that in just a second. The third piece is... We, and now Mother Teresa again. The third piece is that particularly in mainline liberal churches focused on kind of social justice, we've kind of let go of those first two and focus fully on, on the last one. That if we go and do the right thing for others, then we're going to be just fine with God. And that's that, that's that action, it's about works, that makes us fine with God. But now we'll go back to the Ephesians. That's not what it said. It's not by works. It's by God's grace that we become whole. I'll use that language. So, do we have to choose one of those three? I don't think so. The danger is letting go of all of them and having nothing then to stand on. And I think there is a synthesis that can happen in the midst of this. I went to this workshop on Tuesday on transformational ministries. And one of the speakers, Lillian Daniels, an incredible author right now, um, very popular among kind of what's going to be the next wave of churches. Uh, Lillian said that we live in the most narcissistic time in history. I soundly, I will tell you though, I disagree with her. I do. I watch particularly some of our younger folks who are stepping up into some amazing ways for, the, for, for, for all kinds of things to help in the world. There are some of those sitting in the sanctuary this morning. Yes, we are in a time of some sense of narcissism. I'm not convinced that it's a whole lot more narcissistic than any other time in history. At the same time, there's an element of truth to that. Because what we do in the church is we become judgmental about if they're not doing what we think they should do, then I guess we'll, we'll label them narcissistic. So let's talk about this. With all of that in mind, and I know it was long and I know it was detailed, but we needed to come to terms with it. At one meant. What if it's a combination of all three of those things? What if we really found ourselves self-identifying as Christian and not just social justice people? What if we truly defined ourselves as followers of Jesus, as our Christ. If we are followers of Jesus, it means that we seek to live our lives as he lived. Sacrificially. That becomes the highest priority in our lives. That we study, that we pray, that we seek that we listen, that we take time to learn what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus. That we become open and accepting in ways that help people become whole as well. 
Are you Christian? Are you truly a follower of Jesus? Because that requires us to live sacrificially. Others, God first, others as well. See? Absolute confirmation that I'm right. Thank you, Angie. Second piece of that, confession really is good for the soul. We all fall short. Now, here's the danger of this word sin. Because I think David, somebody said, you know, overcoming sin. I want to remind you of what the word means. Sin is not a baseball bat. Sin is not a two-by-four upside the head. Sin is not something for somebody else to tell you that you're doing. The older brother in the field in the story. Sin simply means missing the mark. Anybody in this room, in your life, how about in the last three days? Anybody in the last three days missed the mark on anything? And I would think that the whole that you would all raise your hands at that point. Thank you, May. Um, courageous. We have. Every single one of us have missed the mark. And here's what cleanses that out of us. Is that we recognize that we have missed the mark. And we confess that. Don't get caught up in the word. We confess that to clear it out of our soul to make more room for God in there again. And at that point, we are able to see with new eyes recognize those places where we are missing the mark, but here's what even takes it deeper. The purpose of the church is not to hear some long-winded pastor go into atonement theory. The purpose of the church is that we can come together in a relationship of trust. And Paul got it right. And that we can trust each other enough that we share those places in our lives where we have missed the mark and we share that with others who can then help support and surround and encourage us to get better. That is the purpose of the church. I'd sure like to find a church that does that. I think we do it pretty well, but we're not even close yet because that requires a level of trust that most churches don't have. But if we do that, we will find ourselves at one with each other and at one with God. Finally, out of all of that comes this incredible need and desire to do for the least of these. Every one of us, if we get come to terms with where we're not at one with God, if we ask the question, where and to whom can I turn? And who needs me to be there for them? Kara, I'm going to talk about our conversation, if that's okay. Okay. Kara came into my office this last week and, and talked about what she did, but, but she's feeling this kind of call to a ministry in Thailand. And it's amazing when somebody comes in, and it's just one of those rare privileges as a pastor to hear sometimes somebody who is recognizing a call and trying to seek help with that call. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, just for a second. Is that here is a country that has been, particularly the old Burma, which has been divided by war and just a terrible, terrible time. Myanmar and other places where it's just been 
horrific. A school, a boarding house was built for kids, and the army came and burned it to the ground. And then, I think to some extent, my understanding of this history is that then they recruited those young people into the army. But here's a young man named Punjai. And Punjai um, is an incredibly wise young man and who has seen an opportunity to build a boarding house not on that side of the border but just on the other side of the border. A boarding house for those kids who are in the refugee camps there. A boarding house that is going to offer them a new future and an incredible future that has an incredible opportunity that they would not otherwise have. So I was waiting for the bottom line. How much is this going to cost? You ready for how much this boarding house costs to build? $4,000. $4,000 to take a child like that and change their lives. But I've asked her to do a little more work on it so that we can come to terms with that. But I will tell you, honestly, what I've committed to her is $1,000 of seed money. Inasmuch as you've done it for the least of these. But in order to recognize where we're being called to the least of these, we have to go through those first two steps first. To understand that there are certain things that allow us to be one with God. As followers of Jesus, we live sacrificially. Second is, we confess where we failed. And we don't only just confess to God, we confess to each other. And third, then we open up thoughts and conversations and incredible opportunities of where we can fulfill that other piece of being one with God. Let me close with this thought. And you've heard me say this before as well. We've moved into a family ministries model in the church, away from kind of the old youth ministry and children's ministry and into something that we can do much more holistically. As you know, I come out of a research field um, where we develop programs that reduce risk in kids. The one, the singular, most powerful, singular, most powerful opportunity that we can grant a child or a youth that will reduce their risk of being in trouble later is to provide them significant opportunities to make a difference in the life of another human being. There is nothing more powerful than offering that to our children and youth. That's the gospel, friends. And it's not writing a check. It's being in relationship with another human being. Living sacrificially as followers of Jesus helps us be one with God. Confessing where we've missed the mark with each other and to God adds to the strength of being one with God. The outgrowth of which is then answering the call of God for those who are in need, the least of these, the least of these, is the third essential piece to that three-legged stool. We do those three things, guess what? Atonement. At one meant. So what I'd like to do is just take a moment in the midst of this service today, in a time of quiet, 
to sit quietly and ask God to fill us in a way that allows us to see where we may not be living sacrificially, where we may need confession, and for what? So that we can open our hearts and our souls to what God is calling us to do for the least of these. Are you willing to pray with me for a few moments for that? I want to ask you that as you do, you might think about writing down what you hear. Let's take, a, let's take just a few moments in the quietness of this place to deal with those three things. God of creation, I ask that you help us be Christian. We are unusual in the world if we live it out well. Jesus being the absolute embodiment of what you hope to create in the world. Help us remember, help us not forget that he healed a centurion's servant, that he raised to life a Syrophoenician enemy woman, a child, that he protected a prostitute, that he laid his hands in the messiness that was leprosy, that he healed mental illness and spent time with those who were mentally ill. That he fed those who were hungry and he clothed those who were naked. And he held accountable those who refused to do any of those things, but who judged. God, I know that if we are to be one with the power that is you, that it is through Jesus that we find those answers. Open our eyes. Help us take the actions that are required to become one. One with each other and one in relationship with you. Help us build a church with such a significant level of trust that we truly can risk being ourselves with each other. As we prepare for the offering here in a moment, help us remember that it's not just about writing a check. It's about offering ourselves. Help us to offer ourselves. All this we ask. And truly, the name of the one who showed us everything we need to know Jesus Christ. Amen.